come now to oral questions. The first, in the name of David McLeod. <clears throat> Thank you, Mr. Speaker. My question is to the Minister of Finance and asks, what reports has she seen on the cost of living? I have seen, uh, Mr. Speaker, I've seen many reports that show New Zealanders have experienced major cost of living pressures in recent years. Since 2017, there has been cumulative inflation of 24.6%, with annual inflation peaking at 7.3%, the highest rate of inflation in more than 30 years. The latest data shows inflation remains high at 5.6%, uh, and so it is clear that the government has plenty of work to do. We know Kiwis are doing it tough after six years of economic mismanagement, which is why we are moving quickly to rebuild the economy for all New Zealanders. Supplementary? What? Uh, that's quite true. But uh, in this case, it, the question stopped pretty abruptly. We know, look, we're in a certain direction, and that will continue. Supplementary. Thank you. Uh, what specific cost of living pressures have New Zealanders faced? Food and rent are big pressures Kiwis face, and the cost of both has soared in recent years. Since 2017, food prices have increased by 29.3% above the overall rate of inflation. Over the same period, average rents have increased by $180 per week, a 45% increase. It is no surprise that Kiwis feel like they're falling behind when the cost of basics like food and rent have increased so much. That's why this government is taking action to rebuild the economy so hardworking Kiwis can get ahead. Supplementary. David McLeod. How has the rise in the cost of living impacted interest rates? Mr Speaker, in response to rampant inflation, the official cash rate has risen to 5.5%, much higher than the 1.75% inherited by the last government in 2017. The effect of that significant tightening in monetary policy is a significant lift in mortgage interest rates, putting more pressure on Kiwis who are already struggling to pay the bills. It is a good reminder, Mr Speaker, that there is no free lunch from rampant government spending. It just leads to higher taxes, more debt, and as so many Kiwis are facing right now, higher interest rates. Supplementary. McLeod. What plans does the government have to support Kiwis struggling with the cost of living? Thank you, Mr Speaker. Beating, beating inflation is this government's top priority, which is why we are moving quickly to bring inflation down. We're restoring the Reserve Bank's single focus on inflation. We're reducing costs on businesses by cancelling the ute tax. We're clearing away broken regulations like the previous government's RMA replacement. And next year, we will be delivering tax relief for hard-working Kiwis struggling with the cost of living so they can keep more of what they earn. Supplementary question, Honourable Grant Robertson. Is the latest OECD economic outlook on New Zealand correct when they said that, quote, we should not have tax cuts if we want to counter inflation and improve the cost of living? No, because oh. New Zealanders have been overtaxed by a government that oversaw rampant spending increases and their bank accounts have been eroded not only by inflation by high, but also by higher average tax rates and they have elected a government that's going to let them keep more of what they earn. Chloe Swarbrick. You read IRD and Treasury's research, which shows that the wealthiest families in this country pay less than half the effective tax rate of teachers, nurses, emergency and essential workers, and the average New Zealander. 
I disagree with the members' interpretation of research issued by the IRD. Supplementary. Why is her government repealing under urgency public reporting on the fairness of our tax system and pushing ahead with trickle-down tax cuts that disproportionately increase the burden on lower-income New Zealanders? Just a moment. Just a moment. There, there will eventually be a consequence for speaking while someone is asking a question. Just as people don't like answers at times, some people don't like the questions. Do not speak while someone is asking a question. Honourable Nicola Willis. Uh. The newly elected government is not of the view that reporting on things and publishing glossy documents actually meaningfully changes people's lives for the better, as the past government conclusively proved over six years of bureaucracy, report yep, writing right. and printing. Yep. Coming now to question number two, in the name of the Right Honourable Chris Hipkins. My question is to the Prime Minister. Does he stand by all of his government's statements and actions? Yes, I do, and especially this government's action to launch an independent review into Kainga Ora and the deeply concerning financial state it was left in the, by the previous government. I also stand by this government's action to end the dysfunctional Let's Get Wellington moving programme and to focus on delivering infrastructure that Wellington actually needs, and I stand by our action to end the Ute tax. And could I just make another statement by wishing the member a very Merry Christmas and the very best of luck in the new year in whatever role Kira McAnulty gives him. Uh, not particularly helpful for order. <laughs> Merry Christmas to him too. Uh, does he agree with Christopher Luxon, quote, in the real world outside of Wellington, outside of the bubble of MPs, people who want to learn te reo or want to learn any other education actually pay for it themselves? If so, does he believe that standard applies to him too? Good we, we encourage employers to upskill their employees if they need tareo for the purposes of their job. Uh, we support that. And what we don't support is actually bonuses on top of base remuneration. Supplementary. If in the real world people pay for their own tareo Māori lessons, why did the taxpayer pay for his and will he pay that money back? Uh, I think all 123 MPs in this chamber, if they want to learn te reo, that's actually a good thing because they're actually there to represent all New Zealanders. I would suspect that you may have done that the same as Prime Minister and or Leader of the Opposition. Supplementary, so why did he say in the real world outside of Wellington and outside the bubble of MPs, people who want to learn te reo actually pay for it themselves? Because they do, and many public and many private companies, people who want to actually learn te reo actually do it. But if it's a part of your job and it actually helps you do your job to represent all New Zealanders better and you want to learn te reo, I would encourage all 123 members of this chamber to do likewise. Well, sub question. Does he agree with Christopher Luxon with regard to the clean car discount quote, I think if I can pay, I should pay, and if so, when will he pay? <laughs> I, we've talked about this before. Those are my, the affairs of my wife, if what you're trying to get to there. Well, Mr Speaker, which of the following statements, therefore, does he agree with? Christopher Luxon on the 6th of April, I've got one Tesla, a little Tesla Model 3, yep, and I think I've got to say they're fantastic cars. Christopher Luxon on the 13th of May, I have an electric car, a Tesla, I love it. Or Christopher Luxon on the 14th of June, and again now, I don't have a Tesla, my wife has one. Word of order, uh, Honourable Chris Bishop. Mr Speaker, the Leader of the Opposition is very well aware that the Prime Minister is not responsible for statements made by Mr Luxon, which may or may not be accurate, uh, in, before, before he became Prime Minister. Yeah, you, 
That is quite right. I was being uh, somewhat lenient given the nature of the uh, opening of the question, uh, the answer, opening answer to the question, uh, but I think it should be brought right back to the responsibilities of the Prime Minister directly. Will he pay back the more than $8,000 he's received from the clean car discount his government has now repealed? As I've previously explained, the car is owned by my wife. Those are her financial affairs. I wouldn't bring in the affairs of your family member into public discourse because she's not the public figure. No, I, think, uh, I think that's actually, that's actually a very fair point that should well, be taken on board. Point of order, Mr Speaker. We've got a point of order here from the right honourable Winston Peters. Uh, Submitted question. Much more important. Oh, sorry. Point of order, right honourable Chris Hopkins. Well, Mr Speaker, the, Prime Minister, the now Prime Minister claimed that he owned the car himself. Uh, well, look, the realities of that are not immediately evident to me because I don't have those papers in front of me. What I'm saying is that it is a, it has been a fairly long-standing uh, uh, convention in this House not to bring family members into the debate. Well, well a point of order again. If, if, a, if a minister mentions their family in the answer to a question in order to avoid answering the question, it is legitimate to therefore ask them follow-up statements about their own statements. The point of order. This is, this is wholly absurd. Firstly, the line of questioning is out of order because it relates to matters that are not within the Prime Minister's responsibility. Secondly, notwithstanding that clear statement of the obvious, the Prime Minister has deigned to provide a commentary in which he has said that the matter that the member is referring to relates to a family member, and I would encourage uh, members opposite to in, uphold the long-standing convention that you, Mr. Speaker, have referred to. Well, that's that's a relevant point, but relevant point. But all, all government policy is responsibility of the Prime Minister, and that's why the question is being asked. Can we have a point of order from Chris Hipkins? I, I want to be very clear, based on the accusation from Christopher Bishop, I did not bring Christopher Luxon's wife we into the debate. Do you have a supplementary? Yes, I do. Uh, right on, Winston Peters goes first. Sorry. Can I ask the Prime Minister as to whether it's his position on taxation? that you pay the taxation at the time it applies, and if the taxation system changes, then your, taxa your taxation obligations change as well, and not some woke lefty shill view that no, you will... No, no, no. Uh, apply, that you'll apply the tax retrospectively, yeah, yeah, look, which is the basis the, of this uh, question. Uh, much as the uh, Honourable Minister might like to think the Prime Minister is responsible for uh, anything that is, a, is considered to be a... a, a uh, a defence against uh, the, the descriptor that you gave, that's not a reasonable question. So right. we'll progress with Honourable uh, Hopkins. Does he agree with Christopher Luxon with regard to Prime Ministerial travel on Defence Force planes? Quote, there's other options, there's charter options, for example, there's commercial arrangements. Or does he agree with Prime Minister Christopher Luxon that travelling on a Defence Force plane was a convenient option? As I've said today, we've actually asked Defence to actually look at a long-term viable option for New Zealand to use, and that could be commercial aircraft, it could be charter aircraft, it could be leased aircraft or owned aircraft. That's in the future interests of all future and potential governments to do so. I just say to the member, I think the line of questioning, given the economic crisis that's going on in this country, says he's not focused on the real issues. On that case, Mr Speaker, supplementary. Yep. Right Honourable Chris Hipkins. Well, does he therefore agree with Christopher Luxon, quote, that would, it would be inappropriate for us to actually commit and spend new money on planes in a recession, and therefore my personal view is that we travel commercial, 
If so, why has he now asked the Defence Force to bring forward plans for the replacement of those planes? What we've asked asked the Defence Force to do is give us a plan on a series of options and a package that could comprise of commercial, it could comprise of charter, it could comprise of leased, or it may even comprise of owned. But actually we need a long-term solution because on this side of government we want to get out in the world and we want to double the amount of exports that this country generates and part of that is having the tools to do that. Well, the uh, Honourable Chris Bishop. What reflections does he have on the government's priorities in light of the questions from the opposition uh, so far in this term of parliament? No, that's not, a, that's not a question. You know that's not right either. So we'll move now to uh, question number four in the name of Mark Cameron. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Minister for Regulation. What problems, if any, does he hope to solve in his portfolio? Well, thank you, Mr Speaker, and thank you to the member for the question. Uh, At its heart, it is New Zealand's long-term disease of low productivity growth that deprives New Zealanders of not only prosperity but so many of the things that they would like to have. And elements of that productivity problem is caused by excessive red tape and regulation, which adds costs to doing everything from building a home to running an early childhood education centre. And part of that problem is the fact that it's very difficult for people to identify those who put the red tape and costs onto them. A Minister of Regulation will be changing the way that government makes rules and allowing those who are the victims of red tape and regulation to see who is responsible and see a pathway out of the thicket that has stopped them growing their productivity. That was a very long answer that had the indulgence that comes at the end of the year. Supplementary. Why is a Ministry for Regulation needed to reduce regulation? Well, (laughs) Well, Mr Speaker, there's 34 public service departments. There's an estimated, and this is as close as Treasury can estimate, 180 to 200 regulatory management systems and 10 to 14,000 public servants engaged in regulatory activity. Now, I would have thought having one small department Uh, to give New Zealanders a chance of beating that back is a pretty good deal. Supplementary. Um, Just hang on, Mark. Uh, The Honourable Duncan Webb. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Given that ensuring good legislative and regulatory design is already the role of government departments, the Legislation Design Advisory Committee, Treasury, the Parliamentary Council's Office, the Regulation Review Committee, Subject Matter Select Committees, the Attorney-General and this House, isn't it the case that a new department is simply duplicative, excessive red tape and regulation, and a waste of taxpayers' money that does not even meet his own standards of regulatory good management? Yeah, well, that was a question that matched the previous <laughs> answer. Anyway. Well, first, first of all, I'd, I'd like to uh, congratulate uh, the Minister on uh, becoming the spokesperson for regulation within the Labor Party. Now, clearly, the Labor Party uh, believes that some, as he would say, duplication is necessary when he's got all the other spokespeople uh, on the opposition benches. And this government happens to believe that it's necessary to have somebody focused on regulation, just as the Labor Party appears to think it's worth having him focused on it. Supplementary. Mark Cameron. For clarity, does this mean he doesn't think we've been regulating to a high standard already? 
Mr Speaker. That is exactly the point, and you hear it up and down the country almost wherever you go. It's people who complain it takes longer to get permission to build a home than it does to actually build it. It's people who complain that it is almost impossible to get credit without jumping through the most inordinate number of hoops. It's people who just wanted to open kids' eyes to the world and yet find themselves, for example, in an early childhood education centre opening up alleging that they have 303 regulations to follow before they can welcome a kid uh, through the door. Mr Speaker, over successive governments we have failed to regulate responsibly. We now have a government that is going to take it seriously with, I understand, for the first time a minister in Cabinet responsible for Good. regulation. Good. Supplementary. Supplementary. Um, Mark Cameron. What are the areas he wants to focus on? Well, Mr Speaker, while the government has not made such decisions, the coalition documents that formed the government uh, contemplate regulatory reviews going through sectors of what I might call victims of red tape and regulation, sector by sector. It contemplates early childhood education, which I've already mentioned as being particularly uh, over-regulated. Uh, it mentions the financial sector, uh, which I've already mentioned. It also mentions health workforce, where there appears to be real difficulties uh, getting people who are eminently qualified to perform a duty in New Zealand to be allowed to do so here, and we find them performing that duty for citizens of another country shortly after being rejected here. But I'm sure the member as the uh, chair of the Primary Production Committee will be pleased to know the documents also consider a regulatory review yeah, of the good. agricultural sector. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Thank you. Come now to question number four in the name of the Honourable Grant Roberts. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Minister of Finance. Is she committed to implementing all of the economic and fiscal commitments in the coalition agreements between National Act and New Zealand First? Yes, subject to final consideration and decision-making by Cabinet. Supplementary, Mr Speaker. Uh, will the mini-budget tomorrow give specific details as to how the tax cuts programme of the Government outlined in those coalition agreements will be self-funded? Mr Speaker, the member, along with others, will have to await the announcement of the mini-budget tomorrow to get an answer to his question. Oh, is that right? Supplementary. Mr Speaker, does she agree with Nicola Willis, who said in September that the mini-budget would set out the cuts and new taxes needed to pay for the tax cuts promises in the coalition agreements? I can confirm for the member that the mini-budget we will announce tomorrow will set out the first steps of the urgent economic repair job that our coalition government has underway to restore New Zealand's economy after a period of excessive economic and fiscal vandalism. Supplementary. What is the total cost to the government of the commitments that have been made in the coalition agreements? The individual costings of policies will be dependent on the consideration of Cabinet, the implementation details of those policies and their phasing. Thank you. So is it correct then that the Minister doesn't know how much the commitments in the coalition agreements cost, doesn't know how she's going to pay for her tax cuts, and is her mini-budget, which the Prime Minister now describes as a mini-mini-mini-budget, now actually a nano-budget? <laughs> No, none of those things are true. I know many, many things, and I would suggest, based on my reading of the state of the government books, I know a lot more about how to be a custodian of public money than the former minister did. 
Question number five, Dana Kirkpatrick. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My question is for the Minister of Housing. What recent announcements has he made regarding Kainga Ora? The Honourable Chris Bishop. Yesterday I announced that the Government has launched a review into Kainga Ora for filling our first 100 days commitment to commission an independent review into the state housing provider's financial situation, procurement and asset management. Mr Speaker, we've long been concerned about the performance of Kainga Ora, whether they're operating efficiently and effectively. Their performance directly impacts the New Zealanders who rely on them for housing, but also the government books. The independent review will identify ways to uh, improve their performance and value for money and manage the impact of Kainga Ora on debt and the government books. Supplementary. Uh, what concerns does he have on Kainga Ora's financial performance? Mr Speaker, many. Uh, Treasury and the Ministry for Housing and Urban Development have uh, reported that their Kainga Ora's level of debt has grown from $2.7 billion in 2018 to $12.3 billion in June of this year. Advice publicly released already suggests that if Kainga Ora continues on its current trajectory, the debt would reach nearly $29 billion by 2033. These increases are concerning, and I'm also worried about the operating deficit, which is $520 million in 2022-23, and is forecast to continue to increase. It's important to note, Mr Speaker, the deficit has a direct impact on Obergall and continues to put pressure on the return to Obergall surplus. What reviewers have been chosen to undertake this review, and why? Mr Speaker, we've put together a panel of three expert reviewers with a deep understanding of the social housing and the wider housing sector. Former Prime Minister Right Honourable Sir Bill English will lead the review team. Joining him are Simon Allen and Kyman McNeil. Uh, these three experts will provide a, a um, targeted and focused review to ministers to report back in March next year. The Right Honourable Could the Minister urgently put out a press statement? explaining what kāinga ora means or papakāinga means, because there are journalists out there asking members of parliament what it means, and this is a desperate situation that we've reached at this point in time. Honourable Chris Speaker. Well, um, I am not a member of parliament or a minister who is known to not want to put out press releases. Uh, I enjoy putting out press releases, and I intend to put out many more about the woeful uh, state the, no, government, the previous That's government enough. left the housing situation. Dana Kilpatrick. What are the next steps for this review and when does he expect it to be completed? Mr Speaker, this is a significant body of work and a priority for our new government. The Kainga Ora Board is being consulted on the terms of reference right now and they will be released later this week. We will receive the first report back in March 2024. We are all looking forward to receiving the findings. Supplementary. Uh, Tamitha Paul. Uh, sorry, it's got a bit. Diving Central. No, no, let me get your name. I'm sorry, my apologies for that. That's okay. Oh, yeah, I can't, uh, no. Um, Tamitha. Oh, Hannah might be. Tamitha Paul, not Hannah Rafati, but thank you for oh, the compliment. Oh, Tamitha Paul. My, look, my, um, sorry, members, I just apologise to the member for that. Just uh, there are quite a few new names to know, quite a few new faces, and uh, I'm doing my very best. But Tamitha Paul. Thanks, Mr Speaker. Um, will he commit to ensuring no net loss of state housing in his term? Our, our intention as a government is to grow the supply of social housing because the wait list for social housing quintupled under the last government and there are thousands of New Zealanders in need of greater support. 
Thank Come you. My question was actually about state housing, not social housing, which are uh, different things. Uh, will uh, he ensure... Uh, don't do that. Okay, my Just bad. ask a question. Yeah, Kate's quiet. Will he ensure that projects underway, including Arlington, which intends to deliver 300 public houses in Wellington Central, will be completed and not scaled down? Uh, yes, our intention while the review is underway is that the current work pro programme of Kainga Ora continues. We're happy to have a conversation with the member about specific uh, Wellington projects because, again, there is a significant need in the Wellington region for social housing because of the woeful state the last government left social housing yeah, in Wellington. Right. That's enough. Come now to question number six. Number six, in the name of the Honourable Kieran McAnulty. Mr Speaker, my question is to the Minister of Local Government. Does he stand by the government's commitment to repeal the affordable water reforms and, quote, restore council ownership and control, unquote? If so, will he guarantee balance sheet separation will be retained? Mr Speaker. The Honourable Sermian Brown. Thank you for the question. Uh, yes, I'm, the government is committed to repealing the previous government's reforms. And, Mr Speaker, I'd like to be clear that the key principles of our reforms will be to, one, introduce economic and quality regulation of water, two, fit-for-purpose service delivery models and financing tools, three, setting rules for water services and infrastructure investment, and four, ensuring water services are financially sustainable, which may include balance sheet separation. What does that mean? Supplementary. Is the Minister aware advice from the Department of Internal Affairs and public comments from credit rating agencies that say balance sheet separation will not be recognised if these reforms are repealed? Uh, there's been a range of advice that I have received uh, as I have been approaching repealing the prior government's reforms, uh, including the fact that the last government spent over $1.2 billion but didn't actually achieve anything. Yeah, we, we, that, that steps a bit wide, so just calm that down. Supplementary. Um, Thank you, Mr Speaker. Can the Minister then guarantee that his government's replacement of the affordable water reforms will save ratepayers more than they were lined up to under the reforms? Our reforms will ensure that local government has the tools that they need to be able to deliver long-term funding and financing of water infrastructure in New Zealand. Why won't the Minister guarantee that ratepayers will save more money by repealing the affordable water reforms rather than sticking with them? Well, we are focused on ensuring that councils have the long-term funding and financing tools that they need to be able to deliver water infrastructure in New Zealand. The last government spent six years and failed to actually get anything achieved in water reform in New Zealand. What advice has he received on how much money has been spent on three waters reforms to date? Well, Mr Speaker, uh, I've received advice that the total expenditure uh, by the prior government to the 6th of December was $1,202,062,000, all talk, very little action. All good. We'll come to question number seven, the name of Tim Costley. Uh, tēnā koe mangai. To the Minister of Transport, what recent announcements has the government made on Let's Get Wellington Moving? Mr Speaker. Brown. 
on Sunday, the government, Wellington City Council and the Greater, Wel Regional Council, Greater Wellington Regional Council announced that we would be ending Let's Get Wellington Moving, a programme which has failed to deliver the infrastructure that Wellingtonians need. Withdrawing was a key priority in the Coalition Government's 100-day plan and the National Act Coalition Agreement, and I'm pleased to say that we're delivering on this commitment. Supplementary. Tim Costley. Uh, why have these changes been made? Well, that's a very good question. Let's Get Wellington Moving had failed to deliver the infrastructure that Wellingtonians needed. Over $160 million had been spent on the programme, of which $82.3 million had been spent on consultants, while just a single set of traffic lights on State Highway 1 has been delivered. This government is focused on delivery, unlike the former focused on consultancy. Supplementary. Tim Costley. Uh, what are the next steps for transport infrastructure in Wellington? Very good question. Again, uh, our coalition government is committed to delivering key roads of national significance in Wellington, which also support local government to improve the city's bus corridors. We will deliver a second Mount Victoria tunnel and upgrades to Basin Reserve as part of our Roads of National Significance programme. Question number eight. Question number eight in the name of the Honourable Deborah Russell. Dr Deborah Russell. <clears throat> to the Minister for Tertiary Education and Skills, what specific actions, if any, has she taken with respect to the government's plan to disestablish Tipukenga, New Zealand Institute of Skills and Technology? Uh, Mr. Speaker, I thank the member for her question. I sought advice on the options open to me, and following that, I've taken the following actions. I've met with the chief executive and the chair of Tipukenga. <laughs> I have met with members of the Taipukinga board, including the new chair. I have delivered a new letter of expectation to Taipukinga. I have met with the Tertiary Education Commission and the Minister, Ministry of Education, and begun work with officials on the development of a work programme to disestablish Taipukinga. Supplementary. What is the estimated cost of the plan? Mr Speaker, the estimated cost of the plan is being worked through by the officials and by Te Pukenga, but I can assure the member that it will be considerably less than the $200 million that the previous government wasted on the establishment. Dr Deborah Russell. Given her statement to News Hub that their funding will increase, has she requested funding from the Minister of Finance for the government's plan to disestablish Tipukinga? Oh, un unfortunately, Mr. Speaker, the member failed to take into account the full uh, answer to that, and that is the unified funding scheme that was brought in by the previous government top sliced around 20% of the funding off the individual institutions and it was used in a contestable way, uh, in a centralised contestable way. And so the additional funding, Mr Speaker, I was referring to was reinstating that full amount of funding back to the institutions. Honourable Dr Deborah Russell. 
If the funding is therefore coming from existing baselines, then what part of tertiary education funding will she cut in order to fund the estimated $185 million of deficits that our polytechnics are facing in the next financial year? An excellent question from the member, Mr Speaker. I will cut the very expensive, bloated head office of Te Pukenga. Supplementary, the Honourable Nicola Willis. Supplementary question. Can the Minister explain which government was in charge when the deficits were created? No, no we're not having that one. Nice try. Um, Question number nine, the Honourable James Shaw. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Minister of Transport. Does he stand by the principle in his government's coalition agreements that, quote, decisions will be based on data and evidence, end quote? Mr Speaker. The Honourable Simeon Brown. Yes, the government's coalition agreements set out our priorities for this term of government, and we are committed to delivering these priorities. What data and evidence did he receive from officials on the impact of repealing the clean car discount on the second and third emissions budgets prior to the Cabinet decision to do so? Uh, I received a draft regulatory impact statement uh, which I have instructed uh, officials to proactively release. What data and evidence on emissions, if any, did he provide to Cabinet on the decision to repeal the clean card discount? I advised Cabinet that uh, the emissions budget would be met whilst uh, repealing this scheme. What data and evidence, if any, did he provide to the Minister of Climate Change on the emissions impact on the second and third emissions budgets of repealing the clean car discount? The same evidence and data I provided to Cabinet. Did he inform the Minister of Climate Change of any risks of failing to meet the second emissions budget as a result of repealing the clean car discount? I advised the Minister of Climate Change of the same advice that I received from the Minister of Transport, Ministry of Transport in regards to those budgets. Did he invite the Minister of Climate Change to provide options on proportionate action to address any emissions reduction shortfall for transport in the second emissions budget? Well, as the member will know, as a former Minister for Climate Change, there is work to be done around what will be included in the next two emissions budgets, and that work uh, and advice will be received as part of the process. Is he aware that the second emissions budget has already been set by Parliament? Yes, and the actual activities within uh, which will meet that budget are still be worked. But as, as I said in the House uh, last week, the emissions trading scheme is the tool that this government is going to heavily rely on to meet our emissions reduction priorities. So was there any proportionate action decided by Cabinet when Cabinet decided to repeal the clean car discount? Cabinet agreed to repeal the clean car discount as part of the coalition agreement. The uh, supplementary, the Honourable David Seymour. 
did the advice uh, provided consider the possibility that any increase in emissions from repealing the clean car discount would increase demand for carbon credits, therefore increase the price of carbon credits and reduce the quantity of carbon credits demanded elsewhere in the economy, thereby reducing emissions? And wouldn't he expect a former Minister of Climate Change to understand something that simple? You well, can the, comment on the first part of that question. Well, the, the, the reality is that emissions are capped under the emissions trading scheme, and that member, should un, the, the former Minister for Climate Change, should understand that. Come now to question number 10 in the name of Dr Not Vanessa much to wait for. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Minister for Education and asks, uh, what progress is the government making on its 100-day plan in education? Mr Speaker. Today, the government has announced a suite of changes to ensure we are focused on teaching the basics brilliantly. All primary and intermediate students will be taught an average of an hour a day in each reading, writing and mathematics. A ministerial advisory group has been appointed to urgently review the curriculum uh, and the common practice model, and the distraction of cell phones will be removed from our classrooms. These changes in the 100-day plans are just the first steps in the government's plan to lift student achievement because it is our aspiration to get 80% of students to curriculum by the time they leave intermediate so they can go on to access the curriculum at high school, gain a qualification so they can go on to live the life they deserve. Vanessa Who is the ministerial advisory group made up of? Uh, Mr Speaker, this group will be made up of a combination of subject matter experts and curriculum experts, outstanding principals and leading academics from around New Zealand. The group is going to be chaired by Dr Michael Johnson, a senior fellow at the New Zealand Initiative. To his role as chair, Dr Johnson will bring the extensive knowledge of the science of learning that is required to improve educational achievement in New Zealand. Members uh, include outstanding principals like Ian Taylor of Manurewa Intermediate, distinguished subject matter experts like Dr Elizabeth Rata, <laughs> Professor Gavin Martin, Sir James Chapman, Dr Melissa Derby of Ngāti Ranganui, all of whom bring the expertise required to ensure our curriculum is world-leading and doesn't leave anything to chance. Dr Vanessa Winnick. What has the Minister tasked the group with doing? Mr Speaker, this group will be tasked with reviewing the curriculum and the common practice model. The scope of the review will include providing me with advice and feedback on the existing draft, as well as additional content to ensure our curriculum is underpinned by the science of learning. I want to ensure that we have a clear annualised progress, progression outcomes to better support teachers to design their programmes of learning, to better support students to develop mastery of the basic skills and to better support our education system to do what it says on the tin. Give every child the opportunity to be numerate, to be literate, to gain meaning secondary qualifications and to live the life they choose and deserve. Dr Vanessa. How is the government going to get 80% of students to curriculum. Mr Speaker, recent national monitoring data shows that only around 40% of children are currently at curriculum level for mathematics in year eight. And student achievement and co-requisite assessments at high school revealed that only 56% of our students passed the numeracy assessment. 
The recent changes the government has made will see our children return to the classroom in 2024 undistracted by cell phones, focused on the core skills of reading, writing and maths for an hour each a day, and we are working at pace to ensure our curriculum and common practice model documents are world-leading and backed by the evidence of the science of learning to support our great teachers. Under this government, the perpetual decline of student achievement will stop. We want to see children back at curriculum and we want to see New Zealand back in the top 10 of OECD countries for academic achievement. Mr Speaker, this government is aspirational for our kids and what we have achieved in the last three weeks is just the start. And can I just finish by saying, Mr Speaker, if you will indulge me, happy sweet 16 to my daughter Holly. Well, that last remark probably saved you because that question rivaled David Seymour for length, but um, <laughs> we'll just try and keep them a little more concise in the future. Uh, question number 11. Honourable Rachel Brooklyn. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Minister for the Environment. Does she agree with the objectives of the National Policy Statement for Freshwater Management 2020? And if not, why not? If not, why not? The Honourable Penny Simmons. Thank you, Mr Speaker, and I thank the member for her question. Mr Speaker, this coalition government is committed, as am I, as Minister for the Environment, to improving freshwater quality for the benefit of all New Zealanders by ensuring a sustainable and balanced approach that works towards improving the environmental outcomes for our waterways. Uh, that that really did not address the question. It was about the principles. Uh, and whilst it was a policy statement, it really didn't address the question at all. Uh, well, um, on notice. Okay, let's have another crack at it. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Mr Speaker, we consider that to have an enduring and sustainable solution, there needs to be a balanced approach, which recognises the interests of all water users. Yeah, just um, if the Minister has a quick look at the question, it's asking, does she agree with the objectives of the National Policy Statement for Fresh Water? The answer she's given is an outcome, but perhaps address that. Thank you, Mr Speaker. No, we do not agree with the hierarchy of objectives and that is why we have undertaken to replace the National Policy Statement for Freshwater Management to ensure more balanced, enduring and sustainable outcomes. Good. Now, Rachel Supplementary. Uh, can the Minister explain then exactly what parts of the objective in 2.1 she disagrees with? And I will read that out because the objective of this national policy statement is to ensure that the natural and physical resources are managed in a way that prioritises, first, the health and wellbeing of water bodies and freshwater ecosystems, second, the health needs of people such as drinking water, third, the ability of people and communities to provide for their social, economic and cultural well-being now and in the future? Mr Speaker, well, I think I have answered it, but I'll answer it again, and that is the Coalition Government is committed to improving freshwater quality for the benefit of all New Zealanders by ensuring a sustainable and balanced approach that works towards improving the environmental outcomes for all our waterways. Supplementary. Honourable Rachel Brookings. 
Does the Minister agree with the objective AA1 in the 2014 amended in 2017 National Policy Statement for Freshwater Management that was to consider and recognise to mana or to wai in the management of freshwater? One of the key objectives in our replacement of the MPS freshwater management will be to ensure that a balanced approach is taken in representing the interests of all water users. A point of order, Dr Duncan Webb. That was, although not a notice, a very clear, clear question about whether the Minister agrees with Tamana Otawai and it wasn't, didn't come close to addressing it. Yes, except that she has started off uh, after a bit of time, saying no, and therefore any explanation around that becomes a reasonable answer. Uh, question number supplementary, twelve. Supplementary. Supplementary. Oh, sorry. Uh, 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 supplementary, Rachel, Dr. <laughs> uh, Honourable Rachel. Brookie. Yes, no, Doctor. Thank you, thank you, Mr. Speaker. Can the minister explain the role of district councils in managing environmental limits referred to in the speech from the throne, which said the National Policy Statement for Freshwater Management 2020 will be replaced to ensure a local approach, allowing district councils more flexibility in managing environmental limits? Uh, Mr Speaker, sorry, I didn't catch all of that question, but I can assure let's, the member... Let's not, let's not have any issue. Ask it again. Thank you. Can the Minister explain the role of district councils in managing environmental limits referred to in the speech from the throne, which said, the National Policy Statement for Freshwater Management 2020 will be replaced to ensure a local approach allowing district councils more flexibility in managing environmental limits. Thank you uh, to the member for repeating that. Uh, Mr Speaker, in the process of uh, developing the replacement uh, national policy statement on fresh water, we will be consulting widely with all stakeholders, including local authorities, and I can assure the member, Mr Speaker, that we uh, are... In very invested in ensuring that local communities get the opportunity to customise and to have nuanced uh, processes in place that ensure that at a community level they can be making decisions that are appropriate for that community. Thank you. Question number 12. Does he stand by all of his government's statements and policies? Uh, yes, and particularly our desire to improve outcomes for Māori and non-Māori. How can he stand by the policy to legislate English as an official language when there has been no public movement for the change, whereas when Te Reo Māori was made an official language in 1987, it was the result of 20 years of campaigning and a petition signed by over 30,000 people? It's just common sense. We want English, te reo and sign language to be official languages of New Zealand. Is he not aware that English is an official language by de facto in Aotearoa? Or is this policy just right fragility? So let's just make it official. Why is he attacking the use of te reo Māori in public service when research shows that public attitudes in support of te reo Māori at an all-time high. We're not attacking Te Reo. We think Te Reo is a very valuable language that will encourage more people to learn. Supplementary question. Supplementary question. question right uh, as a basic legal precept, can I ask the Prime Minister, how can, sorry, can, can, something, be, how can something be de facto legal? 
Well, the point is that English should be official, Te Reo should be official, and New Zealand Sign Language should be official languages of Aotearoa New Zealand. Thank you, Mr Speaker. What is, what is his response to those calling on him to repay the taxpayer for the funding he used for his own Te Reo Māori lessons? And does he think good spending of taxpayer money will be to encourage more MPs and public servants to learn Te Reo Māori? Yes, yes, I do. And that's why I said earlier, 123 MPs here in this House learning Te Reo would be a good thing, given they represent all New Zealanders. Uh, point of order, uh, the Honourable Chris Bishop. Mr Speaker, the, the questions have flown back and forth, but the, the Prime Minister is not responsible for matters uh, that relate to his time as Leader of the Opposition. Um, so I just make the point that uh, on a couple of occasions over the last couple of question times we have strayed well away from Prime Ministerial or Ministerial responsibility. Yes, I know. Often answers do the same thing. So we'll just... Uh, Take it as, it as it flows. Prime Minister is actually quite good at answering questions, I think. And um, it was sorry. So that was a very, a very unspeaker-like statement. My apologies to the House for that. Um, uh, I think there is someone going to stand up now and say something. Mr. Speaker, I was. I, I was waiting. I was waiting for Mr Speaker to conclude oral questions. Oh, well, you're quite right. I conclude oral, oral questions are concluded. Thank you, Mr Speaker.